While I am writing you, the shells are screaming and the bullets are hitting, but why should I care? I have just had a good meal, wrote Emile Gauguin, an Acadian lumberjack from New Brunswick who had volunteered to go fight fascism in the Spanish Civil War and who would be interrogated about his activities while he was there. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Apellidos y nombre. Emil Gauguin. Lugar y fecha de nacimiento. Cape Bald, New Brunswick, Canada. Born January 11, 1900. 38 years old. ¿Qué idiomas hablas? French and English. ¿Cuál es tu nacionalidad? I am French Canadian. Nombre de tus padres, familiares próximos, sus condiciones sociales. My father is Placide Gauguin. He is a police officer and he still lives in Cape Bald, New Brunswick. My mother was Clotilde Gauguin. She is dead. Sus opiniones políticas. They were both liberals. ¿Cuáles son los estudios que has hecho? I went to primary and elementary school. ¿Universidad? No, that's it. ¿Tienes documentos personales que puedan legalizar tu situación frente a las autoridades del país extranjero a que vayas? Yes, I have my Canadian passport in Barcelona. Fecha de tu llegada a España. I arrived in Spain on April 14, 1937. ¿Con qué objetivo has venido a España? To fight against fascism. Usually, when I do my research for these stories, the research part isn't really very interesting. There's normally lots of digging in archives, plenty of reading books, flipping through old newspapers, poring over ancient maps, the sorts of things that I personally find really fascinating, but a lot of people probably wouldn't. But for this one, though, how I went about getting a hold of the documents about Emil Gogan's time fighting in the Spanish Civil War, which lasted from 1936 to 1939, took me on a distinctly more international quest, all the way to Russia, where I got the transcript of this interrogation. Emil Gogan was one of 1,546 Canadian citizens who volunteered to fight on the side of the newly elected Republic of Spain's government against the military coup trying to overthrow it. The army trying to overthrow the government was backed by Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy. I started digging into Emil Gogan's story more than a year ago, in January of 2022. He was, as far as I could tell, the only person from my home province of New Brunswick to volunteer and fight in that war. The problem here was, the Canadian's government banned its citizens from going to fight in the Spanish Civil War. So those 1,546 Canadians who did go over there to fight had to do so in secrecy. And obviously, secrecy makes research hard. Aside from that little quote that opens up the episode, I was unable to find anything about Emil Gogan, so I more or less gave up. I later learned that some members of the International Brigade that Emil Gogan had volunteered to join in Spain had been interrogated by officers of the Soviet Union's Red Army. 
the Soviet Union, which is now Russia, was then uneasy allies with the International Brigade, but were deeply suspicious of them. They would later turn on the International Brigades, so the stakes for those being interrogated could not have been higher. It turns out that the Soviets had interrogated Emil Gogan. However, the records of his interrogation are currently held in Moscow. Obviously, the newspapers I write for aren't sending me to Moscow. While they do let me write about whatever I want to, I don't think that they're that invested that they would send me over there. However, I discovered that the Russians had actually digitized their old Soviet records and put them up online. So I went to that Russian archives website and, well, everything was in Russian. I'm not quite sure what I expected. I mean, of course they were in Russian. But a while ago, I met this Russian lady who was a fan of backyard history. She told me that every week she cuts out my column from the newspaper and keeps it. So I reached out to this Russian woman named Elena and asked her to help me figure out this Russian archival website. Turns out that the website was definitely out of date and hard to navigate, even if you did understand Russian. She did manage to get a hold of Emil Gogan's files, though, but only to learn that they were so poorly digitized and bad quality that they were completely unreadable. So I figured that was that, and that was the end of Emil Gogan's story. It's a dead end. But then she said, Tomorrow I will phone Moscow to get better quality. Okay. <laughs> a few days later, she gets in touch and she hands me a file of documents from the Russian archives in Moscow about Emil Gogan's interrogation by the Soviets. On the front of the file was a photograph of him that the Soviet interrogators had taken. He's standing outside against a wall, squinting into the Spanish sun. He looks proud, but slightly apprehensive. He sports a pencil-thin mustache, and his shirt is open to the middle of his chest. He wears a black beret. You can really see why the Americans he fought alongside in Spain gave him the nickname Frenchie. You could find this photo and others from the story at backyardhistory.ca. The rest of this file was a handwritten transcript of his interrogation by the Soviets, detailing line by line who he was and what he had done in Spain. All of the questions that were asked of him during this interrogation were in Spanish, and all of the answers were in English. Lugar de procedencia. I came to Spain from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Profesión. I worked for the Telegraph in transmissions in New Brunswick. Later I moved to British Columbia and worked as a lumberjack. I worked in St. John, Prince Rupert, Nanaimo, Port Albany, Seattle, Portland, Aberdeen. ¿Has representado el sindicato en la fábrica? I worked as a union organizer with the LWIU, affiliated with the CIO from Vancouver. I helped lumberjacks form unions. ¿Cuándo has empezado a interesarte al movimiento proletario? ¿En qué condiciones? ¿Has sido influenciado por alguna razón? In 1919, I was a member of the police. I became disillusioned with the police. I distributed proletarian literature to officers after the events. Emil Gauguin almost certainly has the unusual distinction of being the only former RCMP officer to fight in the Spanish Civil War. The Mounties were distinctly unfriendly towards leftists at the time. 
There had been a tiny scandal back in Canada over whether or not Emile Gauguin had actually been an RCMP officer. After some newspapers published that Emile Gauguin had been an RCMP officer, the RCMP themselves pushed back and angrily denied that they would ever hire the kind of person who would go and fight in Spain. Emile Gauguin's reference to 1919 was loaded with heavy significance. The events he was almost certainly referring to completely changed the direction of that young RCMP officer's life. In 1919, there was a massive strike in Winnipeg for higher wages and better working conditions called the Winnipeg General Strike. During the four long years of the First World War, there had been a freeze on wages going up in Canada. All the while, inflation made the prices of everything like food, heating, and rent go up a lot. Workers had been told by the government that no wage increases were allowed until the war was over. In 1919, though, the war was over. And now, the workers wanted the raises that they'd been promised. When raises were again refused, some 30,000 workers in Winnipeg walked off the job. June 21st, 1919, was Canada's bloody Saturday. Thousands of workers were in downtown Winnipeg, protesting the arrests of the strike's leaders the day before. The RCMP gathered on horseback outside of the protest. They lined up and they charged into the crowds. They fired guns and they beat people indiscriminately as their horses charged into the crowd. Several people were killed and many more seriously injured by the police. In the wake of Bloody Saturday, the strike was broken and the workers were sent back to work. A wave of arrests took place all the way from Amherst, Nova Scotia to Victoria, British Columbia rounding up people who were believed to sympathize with the striking workers in Winnipeg. If you'll recall, our protagonist from the Radical Gardener episode of the Backyard History podcast was accused, falsely, of being involved with the Winnipeg General Strike, even though he hadn't actually been to Winnipeg in 11 years. The events that day would cast a long shadow through Canadian history. One of the strike's leaders who was arrested was J.S. Woodsworth, who would form a political party when he was released. That party is today the NDP. Also on a Winnipeg rooftop that day was a sickly young boy who watched the police charge the protesters. He wondered if maybe, instead of becoming a Baptist minister when he grew up, like he'd always dreamed of, perhaps he would become a politician instead. That boy was Tommy Douglas, who was considered the father of Canada's Medicare system and who was voted by Canadians as the greatest Canadian. As all of that was going down, Emile Gauguin had only been a member of the RCMP for one year. Those events in 1919 almost certainly would have come as a life-changing shock to the young police officer. Con que objetivo has venido a España? came to Spain to fight against fascism. ¿Por qué? Because the Spanish people say. ¿Cuál es tu opinión sobre la política del Frente Popular en España? The Spanish Republic stands today as a beacon of light for the whole world. 
The People's Front is doing all it can to save the world from fascism. 18 years later, Emile Gauguin was on a ship bound for France. From there, he crossed the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain. He was going there to fight in a war. The war that he was fighting in was very complicated, with a lot of different factions on both sides. The main group that Emile Gauguin had just referred to in that quote, the Popular Front, was actually an umbrella group consisting of 16 different Spanish political parties. As I've alluded to before, the different factions didn't necessarily always get along, to put it mildly, even if they were fighting a common enemy, especially as far as the Soviets were concerned. I'm not going to go into any more detail about any of that, but if you are interested, I would recommend reading George Orwell's book Homage to Catalonia, about his first-hand experiences fighting in that war, including the fighting that broke out when the Soviets betrayed the faction that he himself was fighting alongside at the time. Here is kind of an actually fun fact. There is still today, to this day, so much controversy around all of the different factions fighting in the Spanish Civil War, that when a far left-wing dating app was launched just a couple years ago, it actually fell apart over people arguing about which factions of the Popular Front had been right in the Spanish Civil War, which had ended in 1939. Anyway, despite that, a brief general outline of the Spanish Civil War is pretty simple to do. In 1936, the Spanish people democratically elected a moderate left-wing government. According to another Canadian who fought in the war, Roland Leversage, all of this happened because the people of Spain had expressed a wish for education, housing, the eight-hour workday, and similar modest reforms. Soon after, the Spanish army under General Francisco Franco, with the help from Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, launched a coup to try and overthrow the brand new democratically elected government and establish a new fascist dictatorship. The newly elected Spanish government, who were usually called the Republicans, because Spain was a republic, which is a type of democracy, fought back and begged for help from the fellow democracies around the world. The other democracies, however, refused. They were fearful of antagonizing countries like Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy and causing the outbreak of another world war. When their governments refused to help the Republicans, some ordinary people in those democratic countries, like France, the United States, Britain, Poland, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and Canada, volunteered to go fight fascism in Spain by themselves. Emile Gauguin was just one of the 1,542 Canadian volunteers who joined the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, who were widely known by their nickname, the MacPaps, and volunteered to fight in the Spanish Civil War. The Canadians who enlisted in the International Brigade came from all walks of life and from all over the country. First, they had to make their way to Toronto to enlist in the MacPaps. They had to do so in secrecy because they were banned from joining the Spanish Civil War by the Canadian government. Next, the MacPaps went to Montreal for secret training. Fearing that they would be stopped by the Canadian authorities, 
Next, they went to New York City, where they would board a ship to France. Just like Emil Gauguin, they would get into Spain by crossing through the Pyrenees Mountains. All of this sneakiness, though, may not actually have been necessary. The Mounties didn't exactly seem upset to see the Mac Paps leaving Canada. RCMP Commissioner James Howden McBrien's handwritten note on a 1937 memo bluntly stated, We are getting rid of a lot of undesirables who may never return. He was right. A lot of the Mac Paps didn't return. Nearly half of them, 714, would die in Spain. Unidad a la que ha sido enrolado. I first fought in Spain as part of the Lincoln Battalion. Compañía. 15th Brigade, Machine Gun Company. Otras unidades a las que perteneciste durante tu estancia en España. I later fought in the 4th Group of Artillery, Anti-Tank Battery. ¿Qué funciones has desempeñado en el ejército? I was promoted to Machine Gun Sergeant and Anti-Tank Chief. ¿En qué operaciones has participado? I fought at Brunet, Guento, Aragón, Tervel, Costillon, Levante. ¿Has sido elogiado por tus jefes? Yes, I have been praised by my commander for saving my anti-tank gun after I was wounded on the 10th of June 1938 at Castellón. ¿Has sido herido? Yes, I was wounded twice. First on the 24th of August 1937 in the line of service manning my machine gun group at the battles of Quinto and Aragón. My second wound was wounded at Castillon Front. ¿En qué parte del cuerpo has sido herido? The first time I was wounded in my left hip, I spent from August until November in the hospital. The second time I was wounded was also in the left hip, three inches from where I was wounded the first time. Emile Gauguin had arrived in France in April of 1937. He was early. The other Canadians in the MacPabs only arrived in July. He seems to have skipped the training in Montreal that the other MacPabs went through. Presumably, this is because he was already a very experienced combat veteran. He had fought the entire length of the First World War in the Canadian Army. Since the MacPaps hadn't arrived yet, Emil Gauguin joined other foreign volunteers in the International Brigade. They walked from France through the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain. Their first fight was the Battle of Brunette. The battle began with the International Brigade launching a midnight surprise attack which completely routed the fascists. This early and remarkably quick and easy victory seems to have had a lot to do with good old-fashioned luck, though. Most of the International Brigade members weren't actually trained. The inexperienced International Brigade seemed almost surprised by their early victory, and they failed to properly capitalize on it. The enemy regrouped and fought back, leading to a bloody month-long fight. A letter by Emile Gauguin describes that battle. Thrice a day about 30 German fascist bombing planes come over and unload, I should say, about a hundred bombs at us, but they don't often hit any of the boys. I can tell you, I am a machine gunner, and when I get mad, I open up on the fascists. I know that it's coming to them. The other day, when we captured a town, we fought them in the streets. They put old women and children in front of them for protection. I haven't shaved for three weeks, but I'm happy. So forward we shall go with my comrades to quick victory. 
It didn't end up going the way of the quick victory that Emile Gauguin had hoped for. By the end of the battle, Emile Gauguin's unit was all but destroyed. Up to 80% of its members were killed, wounded, or missing. After the battle's end, the International Brigade's mail arrived. The survivors of the International Brigade gathered around their mail and listened to their names and the letters that had arrived as they were read out. Very few stepped forward to collect the letters that had been sent to them by their loved ones back home. Their names were read out in silence. None of the surviving members of the International Brigade said a word. Nobody called out dead or wounded. The survivors simply stood in silence, listening to name after name being read out of those who had not made it. Three Canadians' names were called out. Roland Liversidge, a miner from British Columbia, Hugh McGregor, baker from Victoria, and Emile Gauguin. All three had fought in the First World War and skipped training with the MacPaps in Montreal to go to Spain early. None of them stepped forward to get their letters. Unbeknownst to the men standing in silence, listening to their names being read out, all three of the Canadians had gotten cut off amid the chaos of the battle and were making a long and arduous trek to the south to try and link up with other Republican forces while being hunted by the fascists. One of the three men, Rowland Liversidge, would later write a book called MacPap, Memoirs of a Canadian in the Spanish Civil War. In it, he writes briefly about their unlikely escape to safety. During the long retreat, we were battered and bomb-shocked. Our nerves became very tight. Early in the afternoon, squadrons of fascist aviation came over, bombing and strafing the whole country, including ourselves. Artillery fire was creeping closer and closer towards us. The three Canadians spent three days and three nights on the run, being hunted. But then, Liversidge wrote, they ended up being rescued in what is surely the most unexpected way. It was then that I encountered the strangest sight that I had experienced during the whole of the war. After we had withdrawn from the encirclement through the narrow gap, we rounded a curve in the road, which was still under shellfire. There was a small ambulance drawn up on the roadside, and walking unhurriedly back and forward on the road near the ambulance was a woman dressed in full Scottish regalia. The feathered bonnet, the velvet jacket, the fluffy lace jabot at the throat, the kilt with a sporran and knee-length stockings, and the buckled black shoes. The woman was the very replica of the McDonald girl on the cigarette package, except older. A middle-aged woman, red-haired, stately and dignified. Standing on the road near the ambulance was a young Scot smoking a woodbine cigarette. We stopped to talk to the young chap, who told us this was one of the ambulances sent to Spain by the Scottish Aid to Spain Committee. The lady on the road, who was a real lady by rank, was the Duchess of Athol, I'm pretty sure of the name. She was the secretary of the committee. She insisted on accompanying one of the ambulances to the front, and they were now waiting for a cargo of wounded. The young fellow was full of admiration for the Duchess, and I sure share his admiration. Okay, so, just a minute now. Just to recap, our three Canadians got separated and lost during a battle in which 80% of their army was killed, 
and they were being pursued by fascists through Spain for days. And then they got rescued by a Scottish duchess wearing a kilt and driving an ambulance. Okay, so now what's all this about? Well, I, I can't really explain her fashion choices, but yes, there was indeed actually a Scottish duchess roaming around Spain in an ambulance at that time. The Duchess of Athol's real name was Catherine Stuart Murray, or as she was widely known, Kitty. She was 63 years old and she owned a massive 200,000 acre estate in Scotland and was not only a duchess, but also a sitting elected member of the British Parliament at the time, representing the Conservative Party. She had gone to Valencia in Spain in April of 1937 on a fact-finding mission. She was eating lunch in an outdoor cafe in that city on her first afternoon, just after arriving, when a fascist air raid bombed the street that she was on. According to historian Dr. Mike Levy, she had to wipe a man's body parts off of her car. She arrived outside of Valencia, touring the countryside firsthand, and reported back to the British Parliament. One of her telegrams back home, which was read aloud in Parliament, said, Hospitals are overflowing with mutilated victims. The last bombardment. I saw heart-rending scenes. I saw mothers attempting to identify children amongst mangled remains. The mortuary, which I visited personally, was in veritable shambles. I ardently desire you to save victims, especially children, from further frightfulness. Could you arrange for some 2,000 to be received in Britain's Scottish ambulance? I am gladly making all arrangements here. She would successfully manage to help 3,000 874 children escaped the country during that war. After what she'd seen in Spain, she decided that fascism was the greatest threat to Europe. She toured the continent and even went to the United States, denouncing any form of appeasement with Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy. She would resign as a member of parliament in 1938 to protest the signing of the infamous Munich Agreement appeasing Italy and Germany. She was the only MP to do so. And that was who supported Emil Goga and two other lost Canadians to safety. From there, they finally met up with the International Brigade. But this still wasn't the fellow Canadians in the MACPAPs that they were meeting up with, though. This time it was Americans fighting in what they called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The Americans affectionately nicknamed Emil Goga Frenchie because of his thick Acadian accent. Emil Goga was fighting alongside the Americans at the Battle of Quinto when he was shot. The bullet penetrated his left hip, and he was taken to an American field hospital where he spent two months recovering. Once he recovered, Emil Goga finally managed to actually meet up with the other Canadians in the MacPaps. Once he was with his MacPaps, Gauguin was promoted to a sergeant, and he became a specialized anti-tank and anti-aircraft gunner. He fought in the long and grueling battles of Castellon and Levante, 
In this role, he was directly fighting against airplanes provided by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. At the Battle of Castillon, Emile Gauguin was wounded again. He was struck by a piece of shrapnel in his left hip, actually nearly the exact same place that he had been wounded in earlier. Being shot in the same spot twice, and recovering twice, is, depending on how you look at it, either very unlucky or very lucky. The region Gauguin was fighting in was visited by several high-profile supporters while he was there. This included future British Prime Minister Clement Attlee and Ernest Hemingway, who wrote about the war in his book For Whom the Bell Tolls, and it also included George Orwell, who's the author of 1984, who fought in the International Brigade and later wrote the magnificent book Homage to Catalonia about his experiences. When George Orwell was fighting in Spain, he was also shot right through the neck. While recovering, he was told over and over by the medical staff that he was very lucky, and he commented, One of them told me with an air of authority that the bullet had missed the artery by about a millimeter. I don't know how he knew. No one I met at this time, doctors, nurses, practicantes, or fellow patients, failed to assure me that a man who's hit through the neck and survives is the luckiest creature alive. I couldn't help thinking that it would have been even luckier not to be hit at all. Towards the end of the Spanish Civil War, the Republicans faced defeat after defeat until all that was left was their capital city of Madrid. Surrounded and besieged, they pleaded with the world for help, but help never came. By the time of the siege of Madrid, though, Emil Gauguin was already on his way home. Earlier, the fight between the Soviets, who had interrogated Emile Gauguin and the International Brigades, erupted into armed conflict. In the aftermath, the Soviets took over control of the losing defense of what little was left of the Republic, and the International Brigade was sent home. As for Emile Gauguin, he seems to have passed his interrogation, and he would be sent home though he wanted to return to fighting. A short typewritten note in English, oddly enough, was stuck to the top of the file about his interrogation. It read, Gogan Emil, age 39, from British Columbia, arrived April 17, 1937. Front Brunette with Lincoln Battalion. 15th Brigade, wounded in Quinto in hip was machine gunner and a good one. Did good work in BC with Loggers Union, an ex-serviceman. Record in Spain, very good and willing, and ancients for the front, politically fair and good comrade. Roland Liversidge recounted in his memoirs the chaos at the border as civilian refugees and the survivors of the International Brigades tried to make it out of Spain to safety in France before the remains of the Republic fell to the fascists. Casa de la Selva was crowded with thousands of international brigade troops and thousands of refugees. The road from the Mediterranean to the French border was black and crowded with humanity. They came on foot, on bicycles, in donkey carts, in every kind of vehicle including all the city garbage trucks of Barcelona. There were old men and women, there were boys and girls and babies, 
There were girls from the red light district walking dignifiedly on high heels and carrying babies for mothers who were too tired. They were repeatedly bombed by German and Italian planes. They left their dead on the roadside. The fascist planes even sought out the cattle in the fields and machine gunned them to death. The MACPAPs struggled to get into Spain because the Canadian government had declared joining them illegal and sent over officers to the Spanish border to interrogate them before allowing them to pass into France. Colonel O'Kelly of Canadian Immigration had been sent by the Mackenzie King government to interrogate all the Canadians and decide which and whom of us would be allowed back in our homeland. Colonel O'Kelly started out as a toughie, reminding us of our criminal status back in Canada. He was taking hours to process each man. Then the fascist aviation bombed the town. The colonel was visibly perturbed and began to speed up the interrogations. Bombs are a great persuader. The fascists were on the verge of winning the war when Emile Gauguin departed Spain in February of 1939 on a ship named the Duchess of Bedford. When that ship docked in Halifax, a reporter from the Telegraph Journal was waiting. He wrote that The beleaguered MacPap survivors were a stranger group of returning warriors this old garrison city ever saw. The reporter approached Emile Gauguin, commenting that He was looking like a workman on the way to his first day at a new job. Gauguin was aware that the side that he had spent the last two years fighting for would soon be defeated. He told the reporter, I am convinced that the People's Front government would fight to the last. Gauguin stared off into the distance and softly repeated, They'll carry the fight to the end. Only 46 days later, Madrid fell. Ushering in Francisco Franco's fascist government that remained in power until 1977. Seven months after the end of the Spanish Civil War, the Second World War broke out. Emile Gauguin promptly re-enlisted in the Canadian Army to fight fascism once again. He survived that war too, living until 1973. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. by Jordan Lozier. Interrogadora, voiced by Luisa Ospina. The Duchess of Athol, voiced by Stephanie Tate. George Orwell, voiced by Josh Green. Rowland Liversidge, voiced by Kaylin Fraser.